Welcome to Book Banter with me, your host, Diane Burkhart. I hope you will join me every Wednesday as we explore all things to do with, well, <laughs> books. Let's get on with our show today. Hello, my happy people. I am so glad that you're joining us today. It is July 27th, 2022, and we have got part two of the incredible interview with Ali Alvis, known as Book Historia throughout social media. If you missed the first part, it's still live on all of the podcast hosting sites that you frequent. So go ahead and look for that one. But today we get to talk to her about some fascinating books, and you are going to love this interview. So let's just get right to it. Welcome back to the show, Allie Alvis. After you finish your second master's degree, you start <clears throat> looking for a job. What was the first job that you got out of college? So at first, I was not going to get a job out of college. I was going to continue college. I, I had been accepted into a PhD program at the University of Glasgow. Oh, wow. And again, on a whim, very much like uh, applying to the University of Edinburgh, I came across this job posting for the Smithsonian Libraries uh, for their special collections as the library technician. And I thought, eh, might as well see, see how that goes. It'll be a good experience in applying for a job. So sort of on a whim, I applied to this Smithsonian job. And to my never-ending surprise, they called me back and they said, do you want to do an interview? And I said, uh, yeah. And so I did. <laughs> and then to my additional surprise, they called me back and they said, do you want to do a second interview? And I said, uh, I'm in Scotland. Can we do this on the computer? And this, this was before Zoom and before the sort of prevalence of online interviews and things oh, wow. like that. I didn't realize um, it was that far And so, back. yeah, they did it over Skype, and and they offered me the job. <laughs> and my my reasoning there was, well, I will always have my research interests in my head, and I was not going to be paid for this PhD, mm -hmm. so I would much rather sort of get my foot in the door in terms of my career and actually being reimbursed for the work that I do. Yeah. Um, and so I took the Smithsonian job and I picked up and moved to Washington, D.C. I had never been to Washington, D.C. as an adult. I went on a school field trip, I think, in seventh or eighth grade. <laughs> so this was a, a very exciting experience for me. Well, you know, and I have to admit, it's like one of my, my great sorrows is that I never got to make a trip to Washington, D.C. to see you while you were working at the Smithsonian. I always thought that would have been so cool to drop in and be able to sit there and talk to you about books. Yeah, it's an incredible place. It's really, it's one of those American institutions that the name has so much cachet and mm -hmm. you're so aware of it when you're in the spaces and among the collection and interacting with the kinds of researchers that come into the Smithsonian, you're always aware that like this is one of the best places in the United States to do this kind of research and to see these kinds of books. The specialties I worked with were natural history rare books and the history of science. Oh, nice. um, so obviously very Smithsonian-y. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we had a lot of biologists and taxonomists and historians of science and just people who are really at the top of their game 
coming in and looking at the stuff and just having conversations with them was incredible. <sighs> there are endless weird Smithsonian stories I could tell. Um, one of my favorites was we were having a, a reading room tour of a group from, I can't remember what department they were in. Uh, I, I think it was a group of interns from somewhere in the collections and the curator who brought them down to sort of shepherd them into the reading room so they could look at some of our treasures brought along this little cup. And I thought, oh, well, we can't have like food or drink in the reading room. You need to leave that here. And before I could even say anything, she plopped it down on the counter and it had this big, fat green caterpillar in it. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a hornworm. And I think I I wasn't sure if it was going to be food for something or if she was currently working on it and just had to come down to this appointment. But she said, can you watch this for me? (laughs) So you got to babysit. (laughs) And I did. (laughs) But it was just like, oh, okay. And like, this was a big caterpillar. This is not, you know, a little inchworm thing. This is like as big as your thumb, if not bigger. (laughs) luckily it had a lid um but it was just a very smithsonian thing to happen i can just see you going home the day so what did you do at work today honey oh i babysat a caterpillar (laughs) yeah (laughs) i still have a picture of it on my phone it was just like this is the coolest thing to ever happen to me (laughs) that is so wild (laughs) so now what was your favorite book that you dealt with at the smithsonian Hmm. Can you pick um, just one? I, it, it's hard because the collections are so interesting from so many different angles. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the, the natural history angle, which is really a lot of what the people have worked with over the years. You know, natural history illustrations, trying to pin down species names, mm-hmm. depictions of scientific instruments that were in print for the first time, all that sort of thing. But me, a book history sort of material culture person, I was really drawn to the books in interesting bindings and uh, as we've been talking about things with a lot of marginalia. Mm-hmm. So I think my, I don't, I hesitate to call it my favorite, but sort of my baby was a uh, 1490s edition of Pliny the Elder's Natural History and it had been covered in marginalia. It lived in a Benedictine monastery for a lot of its life in the 15th and 16th centuries in a library used by a number of monks. And each of them wrote in the margins about the things that they found interesting or the things that they wanted to remember or cross-referencing this with this other classical source on this topic, but also writing just random notes about stuff. So there's a recipe for wine. There is something talking about how good the the waters of this hot spring are for soothing stomach aches. Remembrances of when uh, holy relics came through town and how they got to see them. And it's just there's so much personality and environment in this book. And it's a really pretty book, too. It's uh, what's called an incunable And Incunable is a book published before 1500 or 1501, depending on who you ask. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's another good old Latin word uh, that means cradle. 
So this is when printing was in the cradle as a technology. Gutenberg had only done his experiments with movable type about 40 years before uh, this Pliny was printed. Um, So they were still kind of working out the kinks of what printed books should look like. And it's on this gorgeous paper that's made of linen rag. Books that are are made of rag paper tend to survive better than books from the 1980s because linen rag is a very stable substance. Mm -hmm. Um, Modern paper, which is made of wood pulp, is sort of naturally acidic and kind of decays over time no matter what you do. But rag paper is incredible in the way it survives. And I actually, this shows my nerd level. I just watched a special on how that was made. <laughs> oh, neat. Cool. Yeah, so I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I just, it was one of those things where I was checking out different videos online and found that. And I sat there for like an hour and watched how to make linen paper. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's it's such an interesting process of like macerating the rags and Mm. and making sure that it's it's pulpy and then you know you basically dip a screen door into a vat of slurry (laughs) and shake it out and yeah it's it's a really cool process it is i was actually surprised how fascinated i was by the whole process yeah you should watch videos on marbling too uh marbled papers are are fascinating to watch i have not even heard of that i'm gonna have to definitely check that out Now, you did not stay as a library technician for the Smithsonian. You also became a reference librarian for them. Yes, that was, you know, a little promotion. And I just started doing my library technician job sort of in addition to a higher level of work and engagement. Yeah, it was a great opportunity. And I got to work with really cool people and do some really cool stuff. Now, is this also where you sort of um, developed your distaste for cotton gloves? (laughs) (laughs) Well, my distaste for cotton gloves started when I first started learning about special collections. Mm -hmm. I was always sort of cotton glove agnostic. I didn't know the right time to use them. So I thought I will just wait around until somebody tells me to use them. And no one ever did. Well, you know, in movies, if you ever see somebody holding a rare book, they always put on cotton gloves. I mean, it's almost in every movie or TV where that is shown. Yeah, it's uh, actually mostly incorrect. Mm -hmm. The cotton of the gloves reduces your sense of touch and your dexterity. So you are actually more likely to accidentally tear a page or to let the book slip onto the ground In addition to the fact that cotton picks up a lot of dust and a lot of just sort of crud. So you can wind up transferring dirt from one book to another Mm -hmm. by wearing cotton gloves. Instead, most special collections libraries say clean, dry hands. So before we had anybody into the reading room, we would have them wash their hands with soap and water. And we actually had a sink and soap in our staff area. So just wash and dry. And that is really the best way to handle books. When I was looking through your articles that you had written, and I saw that about there, I was really surprised by the information in that because I helped pick out some things in the collection that they had at Wichita State University. And the minute that I Mm -hmm. walked in, they handed me a pair of white gloves. 
Hmm. So it's something that has um, adapted over time. Uh, in the 90s and the 80s, I think, uh, it was much more prevalent uh, in, in rare books and special collections. And this was partly because price-conscious conservation companies really wanted to sell libraries white gloves. <laughs> So they said, you know, oh, if you want to be careful with your materials, if you want to make sure that they survive to the next generation, you better make sure that you're wearing these patented white gloves that you can buy from us for $9.99 or whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, this was back in the 90s. And so a lot of libraries who are really concerned about preserving their stuff said, oh, yes, yes, I'll take, I'll take 20 pairs. <laughs> But science and experiments and studies that have been done by conservators in the intervening years uh, have really shown that, you know, these white gloves are not great for handling. And the amount of oils and other stuff that can be transferred from clean hands is really negligible. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you have certain skin conditions or different sorts of considerations to be aware of that should be flexible. But by and large, clean, dry hands will not harm books. Obviously, don't put your finger directly onto the illuminations on an illuminated manuscript. Don't yeah. lick your fingers and turn the pages. <laughs> but generally, you won't hurt a book by touching it with your bare hands. Now, I was really fascinated. I wanted to know what on earth could have occurred to actually lure you away from working at the Smithsonian, because you didn't stay there. <laughs> Well, I knew these couple of cool people who ran this company called Type Punch Matrix, which is a rare book dealer. And during the pandemic, they reached out to me and they said, you know, we, we really like the work that you do. We really like your tone. We're looking for a rare book cataloger. Would you be interested in applying? And I said, yeah, yeah. because rare book selling is it's a different beast from rare book librarianship. Mm-hmm. It deals with similar skills, similar stuff, but with enough differences that uh, it was sort of a new challenge for me. So I went to work at Type Punch Matrix, which is based here in D.C., actually out in Silver Spring, but D.C. area. Mm -hmm. And it has been such an incredible experience, and it's so stimulating when you're working in a special collections library, it's generally a fairly static collection, even if it is big. Mm-hmm. You buy books periodically throughout the year, but you're buying, you know, 10, 20 books, maybe if it's a big year. Obviously, different institutions buy different numbers of rare books. But at a rare bookseller, it's this constant flow of new books that you've never seen before, or mm-hmm. you've only seen once before, or... It's a second edition when you've only seen a first edition, and it is just constantly books. And it's such a cool experience. I feel like my depth of knowledge about books as as a genre of object has been expanded immensely by working as a rare bookseller. You just get so much experience working with stuff that you never thought that you would work with, everything from... 70s pulps of varying quality (laughs) to um, artist books with moving parts to horn books, which are fascinating little um, children's items that are they're they're, They look like paddles, but they have this alphabet mounted behind 
a horn window, which is a very thin piece of cow horn. And it's so they're waterproof and they can't be torn like a book can be torn. So children can do whatever they want with them. Wow. And it's just so cool. Yeah, I'm going to have to look up that and see if I can find a picture of that to add to the the description of the podcast so people can see what that looks like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's kind of hard to imagine because we don't have an equivalent in the 21st century. It's it's a paddle with an alphabet on it. It's just very strange. And it's one of those early experiments with making books for a certain purpose, in this case for children, because in the early days, obviously, you didn't have board books. Yeah nor did you even consider giving a book to a child because a book would have been expensive. Yeah. You wouldn't let your toddler throw around your first folio or whatever. <laughs> so it's it's this changing concept of how children learn and what they should be able to handle. And obviously the horn books and books in general were still something that people with money would have been more likely to own up until the 19th century when the mechanization of print and book production really got going and books could be made cheaper. But yeah, horn books were, were for your little middle-class children who didn't warrant a full-sized book. And I think this is where we're going to cut off the interview for today. Don't forget, next week we have the fantastic finale of this interview with Ali Alvis. You will not want to miss that. Also, be sure to check out the blog post for this interview on BurkhartBooks.com, where I have links so that you can find images and articles referring to the books that we discussed today. They are really fascinating. You want to see these books. Thank you very much for joining us today, and be sure to come back next week. And don't forget, coming up in August, we have interviews with Lisa Silloway, the social media professor. If you are trying to grow your audience on social media, you will want to check out her interviews. She's got a lot of great tips, and they can really help you increase your following. We do have one last bit of business for today. In case you haven't noticed, we have started a writing prompt challenge. We have a page on our website, BurkhartBooks.com. If you go to the Book Banter podcast page on our website, you will find the writing prompts challenge page. We have prompts that we've been giving every week after the podcast. I've been forgetting to read them in the podcast, though. Sorry about that. We're going to correct that today. But if you go to the page, pick any of the prompts. It doesn't have to be the one from today. Write a short story about a page, two pages, three pages are about the max that we want to go and submit it to Book Banter with Diane Burkhart. We're going to keep all of these and post them on the website and we'll pick a few every once in a while to read on air on the podcast. And about three times a year, we're going to pick one at random or maybe have the listeners choose someone to win a prize. So this is something that will be fun for all of us to do. Since I've been forgetting to read some of the challenges, I'm going to go ahead and do that now. We started putting the writing prompts on our website about June 29th, and we've been doing it every week. But since I've been forgetting to mention it on here, not a lot of people know about this. So I'm going to go ahead and read starting with June 29th. The year is 1845. The world is very different from our historical reality. Humans are not the dominant species. July 6th. This prompt comes from writer Sharon Stevens, who was our very first interview for our podcast. You find a trap door in the floor of your house. What do you find when you go down through it? 
The July 16th prompt comes from Mark L. Redmond. You might remember him. He was our first author interview. He writes westerns, and currently he has a new book out, The Box M Gang. Be sure to check out his website. The links are in the podcast descriptions. His prompt. You own a cattle ranch in Arizona. Calves have been disappearing from your herd of 2,000 head of cattle. You have lost 15 during the last week. There have been no signs to indicate the calves were killed by animals. They're just gone. The nearest town with a lawman is 35 miles away. How do you recover your livestock? July 20th. You start a new job working in a rare bookshop. There is one book the owner keeps locked in a glass case with many magical protection symbols drawn on the glass. The owner will not talk about the book, but will only say if the book ever escapes the case, the world is doomed. You are alone in the shop when an earthquake hits, and you watch in horror as debris falls on the case, shattering the glass. What happens next? And the prompt from this week. A woman works in a law firm. She is given a pro bono case for a homeless man who is accused of stealing from a local grocery. When she meets the man, she realizes it is her ex-fiancé who left her at the altar two years previously. How does she handle the meeting? And there you go. Those are the prompts we have so far on our website. If you want to participate in the writing prompt challenge, just write your story. It should be typed, double-spaced, and at least a 12-point font because, frankly, I'm getting old and... I don't want to have to increase the size that much to read it. (laughs) The file needs to be in a doc, a text, or a PDF form, and you just go to our writing prompt challenge page, and it has submission information for you. So that is all for today, folks. Be sure to go forth and be happy.